Today's podcast is brought to you by Stratum Productions. Bringing clarity and order to the chaotic event industry, Stratum is your single-source pro-AVL rental and design resource, proudly servicing shows and special events throughout North America. Founded in the heartland, the company's Midwestern values, relentless pursuit of perfection, and relationship-driven customer focus help separate them from the rest. From the first downbeat to the final curtain call, the Stratum Pro team of industry titans are committed to providing the best gear and technical support available to help you create immersive events that will leave crews thankful and crowds speechless. To learn more about this great company, please visit stratumpro.com. Welcome to Geezers of Gear episode number 169. And again, thank you to this week's sponsor, Stratum Pro. So um, last week we had uh, Michael Strickland on, and honestly, the feedback from that has been tremendous. A lot of people have reposted it. A lot of people have shared it. And uh, I'm very happy for that and, and grateful for that. But very important podcast. We talked about some really important stuff, including obviously COVID, uh, the word that won't go away, the sickness that won't go away. But um, we talked about private equity and private equity's impact on our industry, both good and bad. Uh, we talked about the need for a um, an industry association. I know we've discussed this before. We've talked about it on the podcast before, but I think it's becoming a very, very important topic now and one that obviously Michael is heavily focused on still. And so that started a discussion about us doing something uh, at LDI where we're going to be part of a panel. So I think both myself and Michael will be part of this panel now to discuss at LDI the need for and the, I guess, initial steps required to begin an industry association that'll protect everyone in the industry, companies, people, et cetera. So um, yeah, really important podcast. I hope that you get time to listen to it. Again, you can listen wherever you get podcasts, whether that is Apple or Google or Spotify or whatever, uh, or you can go to geezersofgear.com and it is episode 168. So um, today on episode 169, uh, a good friend of mine, a customer for a long time, a person that many of you probably know or have done business with or something, um, a man named Michael Meacham. I've known Michael for, I think, over 20 years now, but at least 20 years. And um, Michael was a very early customer of both uh, GearSource and my other, my LED business. And... Um, you know, over the years, we've done a lot of business together. We've become good friends. We don't agree on everything, and hopefully none of that will come out on this podcast. Uh, but there's some things we definitely don't agree on, but most things we do agree on. Um, we certainly both agree on Canada, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, I think he's up enjoying him, himself at his new home in Canada. 
and uh, so am I. So we have that in common today for sure. But, um, you know, again, despite our differences, we've always managed to get along very well and we've managed to respect each other and uh, have a great business and personal relationship. And, uh, you know, one of the things I've always really liked about Michael, which I'm going to talk about today on the podcast, is that he seems to just really give a damn more than a lot of people do. And uh, that is interesting to me. It's, it's something, you know, he seems to be seeking a level of perfection that other people don't. And so, yeah, I mean, just great guy and uh, looking forward to talking with him. So please welcome to Geezers of Gear, Michael Meacham. Michael. Hey, Marcel. How are you? Good morning, my friend. Good morning, man. I'm doing amazing. Thank you. How are you? Because of where you are, I can't tell if that background is real or fake. Oh no, it's it's real. Yeah, it's it's absolutely. This is the this is our back. And then if I was in the front, you would see the mountains and the clouds and clouds on the mountains and all that. That is such an awesome. So you're looking out the window at that. Yeah, yeah. I wake up that to is, that every morning. That is so cool. Good for you, man. So Thanks, man. you know, I I hate to dive right in, but I'd love to actually ask you a few questions about this Canada thing. Cause you know, I'm actually at my house in Canada right now as well. And I'm not sitting with a view in the background. I'm sitting in the basement cause it doesn't echo down here upstairs echoes. But, um, you know, I had my reasons. I came from Calgary and, and, uh, I wanted sort of another place, but I wanted it to be close to my home because I still have family here and everything. So I didn't want to have a house in Calgary. It didn't make much sense to me. So I came to this cool little town called Canmore, which you wouldn't even recognize it anymore. It's crazy how much it's changed uh, since, since, uh, since you were here. But um, what was your reasoning behind it? Like, I know your wife is, is Canadian, but uh, aside from that, like what brought you to Western Canada as whether it's now your primary home or your vacation home, or I'm not sure what you call it. So we, uh, every year we would come up and visit Whistler. That was our, that was our holiday where we would go up and we'd go mountain biking and we would, you know, we would take all the rides that Whistler yeah. has to offer food. Canadians are very nice and, and up there it's, it's, it's a bubble. So we're, we're fully aware of that when we go up there, that it's not, it's not real to the rest of the world because everybody is hyper friendly and everybody it's, it's, this, you know, great expats, people from all over the world. <coughs> Excuse me. And we, uh, we just gravitated to it. We loved it so much because the climate was great. And then we would stay for like last part of summer and early fall during COVID. I remember coming out of Publix and just kind of seeing like all this litter on the ground and masks and gloves. And I just went back to Christine and I was like, I don't, I, I can't spend a summer here. You know, our, our work, we still have work, but our workload has come down a bit. Like most people during COVID in the entertainment. Yeah. So we're like, all right, let's go to Whistler. Let's just rent a house for the summer and go up there. And while we were up here walking and taking hikes and I was working, you know, training every day, Christine and I just kind of at the same time, we're like, why don't we just buy a place up here? It's our favorite place in the world. And then Facebook heard us literally in the next day. It was like, here are, here's a brand new home uh, in Squamish, which is halfway between Vancouver and Whistler. Yeah. And it was brand new contemporary. Like we had our house built and we love it here. Like this is, this for me is, this is my forever home and wow. living here 
just uh, like you, there's a sense of peace. There's a sense of calm. There is, uh, there's all of that. So I feel really connected up here. And that's, and that's how we came permanent residence. And, you know, we're here half the, we're half the year. So Miami isn't, you know, we're, we're back and forth, uh, yeah. you know, like, like, well, do you think we'll be up here permanently? The answer is yes, but there's a geographical value of being a lighting designer from Miami versus a lighting designer from Squamish. It doesn't have the same sort of <laughs> yeah. Well, and how long is your drive to the, to the airport? Cause I know you still travel a lot for business, right? Yeah, it's it's uh it's two hours to the airport, and then you know, so you got to leave three hours before your flight. Versus right. Miami, minutes, yeah. and uh, so it's you know, like I had a trip to Milan last month, and I mean, it's it sucks when you when you travel so long, and it's you know we're we're way up here, so now it's like all the flights. If you're going back, it's 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 it adds quite a bit of uh, extra uh, yeah. unfortunate. Well, yeah, you land, you land and you're exhausted and you just want to be home and you still got a two and a half hour drive or whatever. Yeah. And even though which is beautiful, fine in the summer, but right. that drive in the winter can be sketchy. I've done it a few times cause I've skied Whistler so many times, but, um, sure. Yeah. It's good sometimes. I mean, they, they do a really good job clearing the highway and stuff, but you know, if you're getting a storm through there, that is a sketchy road. You know, I've seen some gnarly wrecks off that highway going into Whistler. Well, last year we were, uh, you know, we closed on a house. And we came here and we moved in in December. And Christine and I had, I think, unrealistic romantic ideas of winter. Like we came in, <laughs> it's going to snow and it's going to be beautiful and we're going to we're going to love it. And it snowed every day. Yeah. Uncharacteristically, it snowed every day here. And by the 12th time that I shoveled the driveway and all our neighbors, because the gyms were closed, we were like, yeah, let's go back to Miami. <laughs> well, and your neighbors all think you're nuts, I'm sure. Cause I get that here too. Like you're from Florida. What the hell are you doing here? <laughs> you know, because I love it here. Cause this is amazing. Like, you know, right. but I, I think it's always that grass is always greener thing. And it was for me for a long time too. Like for, for the first 10 years or so, um, I really didn't miss Calgary the mountains, anything. And then just suddenly I was like, bing, you know, I really miss topography. You know, we live in South Florida. There is none. Like you can see for miles, right. you know. And uh, I, I just missed the landscape here, the people here. And so my quick story is that my ex-wife and I, we traveled up here and we went and stayed in the Banff Springs Hotel. And, you know, which is a beautiful, beautiful place tiny little European rooms, you know, the little sort of postage stamp hotel rooms, but um, just a, a, a magical place. And when we were driving back, we had to stop and get gas uh, in our rental car. And we stopped in Canmore. And while I was pumping gas, I saw there was this uh, like news box thing with real estate magazines in it. So I just grabbed one and threw it in the car and, and, uh, later on I flipped through it and this is going to sound very shallow because it is, but there was an ad with a really beautiful blonde girl in the ad that said pre-construction prices, you know, so between the blonde girl and me being cheap and there was pre-construction prices, that was it. I was hooked. Right. So I called and bought one. 
I called I was, sight unseen, no information. I called and bought one of these condos. Yeah, I was always curious that when you see these billboards and you see just that, it's like a picture of a, a beautiful couple or a beautiful woman yeah. that has nothing to do with property. And yeah. then it just, you know, luxury homes available. Yeah. I always wondered marketed that too now now i know <laughs> you dick <laughs> that wasn't nice michael but i guess i opened myself up to it because it really is true you know it, it worked for me um but so yeah initially i bought that little condo and then uh the market was pretty good i sold the little condo and bought another pre-construction place which you've been to my house here in uh in Canada. beautiful house. it's completely beautiful. redone now by the way not completely but you know, the top floor, you wouldn't even recognize. It's much more modern, different colors, different furniture, different everything. But um, but yeah, I mean, just same thing. And I, I mean, I guess one of the cool uh, sort of upside things for you is you don't have to like fear for your life driving to the grocery store to get milk or something, right? Like no, it's a pleasant it, drive. It's, it's a whole different like level of peace up here because I'm very in tune with the energy of people. And I don't mean that like some weird holistic kind of, you know, hippie sense. Like I just mean that like when I'm around kind, good people, I feel at peace. And when I'm in Miami, it's yeah. like this, like having this static, this energy that kind of rubs against you. Uh, and, and I, and I get that's from, from city. But I do find that this imaginary yeah. border between our country is greatly different on the other side. Like you cross over and people are, they just seem to be different. There's a kinder, gentler vibe about it. I, you know, I completely agree with you. And it, I'm not so eloquent in, in sort of describing it like you are with this energy and all this stuff. But I know that when I'm landing in Florida, I'm like, ew. <laughs> you know, I'm just like the people around me on the plane and just like I'm getting like a little bit of anxiety and crossing yeah. over causeway. You know, same thing, same thing. I mean, and when I'm landing here, it's just like, ah, you know, I and it it's just a whole weird thing. And and uh um, but I think part of it, and we won't get into any politics at all, I promise, but part of it I think is really just down to population. You know, like the fact that in a physical landmass that's almost the same, you have literally 10 times as many people in the United States. So that's 10 times as many problems, 10 times as many, you know, whatever, right? And so I think that's part of it. I think just giving people a whole heck of a lot of open space and and maintaining the beauty of that space. And like, I can tell you here in Canmore, and I'm sure it's exactly the same where you are the outdoor life, the, the active life, like you just don't see very many fat people here. Everyone's riding their bikes. Everyone's hiking, walking, walking their dog that, you know, it's just a very healthy lifestyle here. Although, you know, they drink beer at night or whatever, but you know, during the day, it, it's just like people are doing things. They're outside doing things. My TV's and never on here. Yeah, same. Like, we'll, we'll watch a little TV at night before, you know, in, in our living room before we go to bed, but that's it. We're out, you know, like, we will close our office at 3, and then, which is 6 o'clock on the East Coast, and we get out every day. We're hiking, or we're walking, or we're going to the mountains, or, you know, we're going to the gym, we're training, we're mountain biking, like, we're, we're taking all the rides here. We're not yeah. just down as a tourist. Like, we love it, and like yeah. you said, it's, there's this, like, when it's beauty and nature, you're compelled to get out. Sitting yeah. inside. 
Do you have an e-bike yet? No, I, I'm, I, I prefer like actually riding. <laughs> yeah. Until you get one. I mean, they're, they're more fun per dollar than anything I've ever bought in my life. Honestly, I love, I just bought two of them and, and I really, really like them. I love it. Well, we like to do like aggressive mountain biking here. And I find that yeah. the e-bikes are not really suited for that. Like you're, you know, if you're really going out trails, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't really can't say that I see too many e-bikes out there. Yeah. You'd be shocked. Cause you know, I'll tell you here, this is a big mountain biking community and, and even the guys who are doing the massive downhill stuff or the, you know, the big mountain stuff, they're like, you know, you can get a $15,000 Santa Cruz e-bike, right? Like they're, they've got real deal. I don't have one of those. I have like an SUV, like a Cadillac Escalade kind of low rider with a big fat comfy seat. And, you know, I'm on the accelerator every time I get to a hill. Cause you know, sometimes I'm on the bike for a workout, then I'll take my mountain bike. But when I'm on the bike, just to go out and be part of the beautiful surroundings, I'm on the e-bike. I like it. Okay. Yeah. It, it was, my e-bikes are like 80 pounds though. And I went out yesterday with my brother-in-law for a ride and you know, he's, he's extremely fit, older than me, extremely fit rides a couple hundred miles a week on his bike and stuff. And, uh, no matter what, he would not hit the accelerator on this e-bike, right? No matter what. So we're going up these big hills and I'm just like, you know, no puffing or anything. And I'm waiting at the top for him. And he's like, cause they're 80 pounds. They're pigs. And, right. uh, so, I'm not meant uh, to pedal up a giant hill. Yeah. I mean, you certainly can, but it's not easy. You know, it's definitely not easy. They're expecting you to hit the button and go, you know, how long, so, how long can you charge for? Uh, about 75 kilometers, just over 40 miles Okay. Uh, on a yep. charge and they charge pretty quick too. Um, so there's a, it probably wasn't here when you were here, but there's something called the legacy trail, the Banff legacy trail. And it goes along the highway, but sort of in the trees and weaves around and stuff between Canmore and Banff. And it's, uh, it's, I think it's 22 kilometers each way. And, you know, with traffic and parking the way that it is in Banff now, and I'm sure it is in Whistler as well, a problem, but, uh, here it's just gotten crazy. Like Canmore, you got to pay to park everywhere now. Cause it's just gotten so crazy here. So busy, but you can ride your bike along this trail and it's a very easy ride, much easier with an e-bike. And, uh, you know, spend the day in Banff without having to deal with parking and all the problems. So, oh, right um, so yeah, I've actually, uh, I've got Ben from ACT, uh, coming here this week to stay for a couple of days and we're going to do the legacy trail into Banff and go hang out, have a couple beers and then come back again. You know, he doesn't know that yet, but he's going to do that. Well, you drink so, that, uh, drink what Kona is that, is that the Canadian swill beer that you drink? Kokanee, no, uh, not so much anymore. Most of the time, I'm not a real beer drinker. Like, I drink the lightest beer I possibly can. Like, in the States, I drink Corona Premier, um, which people <laughs> tell me, like, Dearson always said that it was, you know, the Mexican White Claw or something, you know? Um, but, uh, but I, I, like, here I drink one called uh, Cracked Canoe, which I think is the best light beer there is it's it's just super light super no big beer flavor to it 
just refreshing. I don't, yeah, it's funny. Like, I don't like beer beer. I like craft beer, and there's the Whistler Brewing Company makes one called Chestnut Ale, which is like if you took the essence of Whistler and you squeezed it into a glass at fall time, that's what this tastes like. It's Whistler oh, really? fall in a beer, and that, that it makes it me feel again? like uh, it's the Whistler Brewing Company, and it's the Chestnut Ale. It's huh. absolutely I'll have to look amazing. For it. I wonder if I can get it here. But, um, yeah, there's one out of Vancouver that we, my brother-in-law, who's a big craft beer guy, Steamworks we discovered. Or... What's that? The Steamworks? No, I forget what it's called. I forget what the brewery is called, but the beer is called Jerk Face 9000. And, you know, we just stumbled across it in a bar in Canmore, and, uh, you know, the name just drew us to it. You know, you had to try Jerk Face 9000, but uh, I forget what the what the brewery is called, but. There's so many of those now, those little craft beers, and most of them are really good. It's just I'm not so much of a beer drinker. I drink red wine for the most part, and beer Again, for like refreshment. Yeah, it's got to be like the it's got to be the craft. I don't like beer that tastes like beer. And you know, even yesterday when we went up to Whistler and we took this like nice almost four mile walk uh, with our dogs and stopped off the Whistler Brewing Company, and I love it. Just yeah. it's, it's it's like home. Yeah. That's so cool. I'm so happy for you, man. I, I love following your and Christine's pictures and, uh, you know, just seeing your adventure. I watched your house being built. I watched the whole snow thing when you were shoveling snow every day going, this sucks. <laughs> you know, this shit's heavy, <laughs> you know, and uh, I, I'm so happy for you guys. I mean, it, it's, you know, I love <clears throat> having people come and use my house and then just seeing the looks on their faces on the FaceTime call when they call me and go, Oh my God, you know, not because I have a spectacular house, but because of what's outside my house. So. What I remember about you was the altitude was much higher. And like, I am very fit, like, you know, work out every day and super. Hit. I remember walking up the steps at your house and getting like, yeah. like remember yeah, I think, it took I think a while to like 4,500 feet is, is where my house is. What's, what's yours? You got to be closer to sea level, right? Are at sea level, yeah. Oh, you are. Oh, totally. so it's yeah. really no change to Miami. I mean, we're a little bit up in the. Uh, we're kind of in the mountains here where we live. We're uh, in Squamish. We're higher elevation, but yeah, it's it's Close nothing like your sea. place. Yeah, it's probably yeah. two thousand feet or fifteen hundred feet or something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It makes a big difference. I'm really used to it now, but uh, like my girlfriend. When she gets here, usually for a few days, she has a headache and stuff because the pressure is just different, and you know it takes a bit to get used to it. But I'm I'm accustomed to it. So moving on, um, you know I I know just more from paying attention than from you and I actually talking about it. But how did you get started? Like I I, I think you were a DJ, right? I was. Yeah, it was a. It, started very early on when I was when I was growing up when I was like when I was 10 when I was nine when I was 10 my next door neighbor uh, was a mobile DJ and I would go over and I would mow his lawn and he would give me like some like like esoteric radio shack lighting kit where there was like a little strobe light or like a little color thing that would change when uh, voice activated and I remember setting it up in my bedroom and just being so like something felt right. And I don't think I knew it at the time, but I believe like it kind of implanted something into my DNA. It was always very creative. I, I wasn't, 
so much like uh, like I wasn't good at math and I wasn't good, you know, dyslexic and all this stuff, but something about art and something about color really spoke to me. So uh, my first go around was I was a DJ. I learned how to DJ very early on. It was in a bit of a motorcycle accident. So during that time of recovery, I bought turntables and I bought keyboards and I learned how to produce music and I learned how to DJ, uh, but also still into lighting. And so my first job at a club was in Baltimore as a lighting person. And then I transitioned to DJing and then had a very prodigious DJing career, uh, but kind of still did lighting at a club called the Fifth Column in DC, Tracks in DC. Uh, and yeah, then tracks, just kind of- Tracks is the one that I remember from, you know, just your story basically. Yeah. It was tracks is a massive club. I mean, it was like first giant, like gay owned and operated club in DC. And it was magical. I mean, the club is so many good friends that came from there and really learned a lot about the gay community and the culture. And, uh, it was remarkable venue and like it put three, 4,000 people in there. So both doing lighting and then, uh, DJing. So for a while, the DJing career took over but even though like I was his top DJ at the time, I remember like being this paralyzing fear that I knew the DJing was very finite and I would, and I didn't know anything else. I didn't go to university. I didn't even finish high school. So I'm like, what do I, what do I do next? And then when I came to Miami in 2000, uh, the, the opportunities for DJing was just not possible. Like you, you can't just go to a city like, Miami not being established and just jump into where you had before. Yeah. Uh, but I saw a need for lighting, like really good lighting people. So the idea was, okay, let's take everything that we learned in the nightclub business creatively, but let's have a very pragmatic, strong business backend and apply that in a business sense. Because, you know, people in the lighting industry, in the nightclubs particularly, like there's a lot of talented people, but because of the environment that they're in, the hours that they're working, and the hedonistic exposure to drugs and alcohol can certainly thwart their abilities to perform really well Absolutely. in that business sense. So that was the that was the idea of, of iDesign when we started it. And it kind of started off very small and organic, and that's when you and I first met about 20 years ago. Yeah. I remember driving to this club and I'm like, Christine's like, is there anything I can do for you? And she was working at another job and uh, I just rattled a bunch of things off to her. And then I said, why don't you quit your job and let's do this together? Because she is really smart. She's incredible business savvy. Uh, she's great with money. She's great with with people. So that's just, just how to we back up a tiny bit. Did, did Christine yeah. come with you from D.C.? No, I met her like in the final DJing days. I was in Cayman Island. I was down there for like a month or two DJing, and <clears throat> uh, and we met. We just uh, kind of went on this like everybody. It's a very small community, and we ended up becoming friends. And then uh, when I moved to Miami, we stayed in touch. And I said, "Hey, why don't you come on down for a holiday?" It wasn't difficult for her because she was living in Calgary and it was snowing in May. So the idea of coming to Miami was pretty oh, easy. So she- she was on vacation in the Caymans. No, she was living there. She oh, went there okay. for a few and we just met. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I never yeah. knew that story either. I knew, she, obviously, she's Canadian. I didn't really know that she lived in Calgary, though, I don't think. Yeah, and uh, she, was, she, was, she went there and she was studying uh, massage therapy, and she did that when she came to Miami for a little bit. 
And then uh, he left to go to Calgary. I went to St. Thomas, and that and St. Thomas was was where my my de- my teaching career tragically came to an end in like the most epic spinal tap sort of way that it could. Uh, I was. Yeah, I didn't realize that the the because I didn't like Cayman Island. You know, you have to realize like I came down there with the persona of a big DJ from DC. You know, with a with a bottle glasses and and you know thinking you know like leather shirts or whatever. And uh, it was such a small island. I, I didn't like it, so I thought St. Thomas would be better. And I didn't realize that the club that I was going to was an open air restaurant. And the oh DJ God. booth was like a, a parrot house. So, <laughs> <laughs> and they asked me to do bingo for happy hour. And this is where I realized no. that my career. And yeah. So on there, it's like the first night people are eating happy hour and you have the little ball machine, you know, so I, the ball comes out and it was like B and I'm on the microphone. I'm like, I like to prologue saying this number with, not more than six months ago, I was teaching to thousands of people. Clearly, my career has taken a direction for the worst. B29. <laughs> like, I thought it was being funny, cathartic, and whimsical. And, like, you couldn't, like, the, the, the clicking of the plates stopped. The whole That's restaurant. Right. And then that was my first and last night DJing. <laughs> <laughs> DJ suicide on air. Yeah. That, that was it. Awesome. I love that, right. though go out with a bang but i mean really like at some point you know that's like spinal tap playing at the puppet show you know you doing bingo bingo at an open air disco or club or whatever it was in in the islands yeah i get it that's wild so that was a very long explanation of how how it all began no no i i love that i mean that's that's incredible so you know you're in miami you start this new thing i design and um, I remember meeting you, and I think originally by phone, and then we finally met in person. But um, because at the time, GearSource had been approached by some guys out of Texas who were selling off a bunch of surplus CK stuff right. that had been bought by yep. it had been bought by Circuit City. And then, uh, you know, new leadership came into Circuit City prior to going bankrupt and decided this is a stupid idea. We're not going to re-outfit all of our stores with all of this LED stuff. And they went and tried to return it to Color Kinetics and Color Kinetics, of course, wouldn't take it back. So they found someone to help them liquidate it. And those guys had no idea how to liquidate this stuff. They had no connection at the time to our industry. They do now, but... Um, at the time they had zero connection and somehow they found me. And so we put this stuff on gear source and we just started selling like, I mean, I think at one point we were selling 200 color blasts a day on average, you know, we were just selling so much of that stuff. And so I think that was how we met if, if I'm correct on that one. You are, you're correct because for, you know, cause that was very early and we're talking like 2001, 2002, maybe 2003. Mm-hmm that the color kinetic stuff is so outrageously expensive there. But when it came up on your site, you made it very accessible for everybody that wanted yeah. to get in to this new tech. Yeah. Uh, Cause it wasn't, you didn't really see it. You saw some color blasts and some coves, but you didn't really see it that much. Yeah. And I remember uh, one of my closest friends, uh, you know, Len 
Len Rowe from who was working at Crowbar as the LD yeah. at the time, uh, they had these big, big wall of fans and he took them and put all the, the color codes behind them and then like made the whole thing look a, like a that EQ was an incredible and a, look. Yeah. It was like, so for me, that was just a game changer. Like that, that moment I realized that this is all, this is all going to change. And, yeah. and, how, and that's how our relationship began. And yeah. that was the first seed that, that really made me go, okay, all right, we can we can do some magic here. Well, and and as I recall, like just specifically the Color Blast, for example, they were I think at the time selling from Color Kinetics for around a thousand dollars, and I think they were say like fourteen, fifteen hundred. If I remember, they were really expensive, yeah, and that was two thousand. And we were selling them for like three hundred or something, you know, like it was that right. that obscene. And they were brand new; they were just. You know, they had been bought by Circuit City and and we were liquidating them for them. So we sold thousands of those things. We met and, uh, you know, you're probably not going to want me to bring this up, but I'll bring it up anyway. So I was, you know, you and I were transacting business and um, I came to discover that you were basically selling the product on for the exact same price that we were selling it to you. And I'll never forget the phone call. Because I was like, Michael, you know, I think we just got payment from one of the clubs that you were working for or something. And it was for the exact amount that that you were paying. And I said, Michael, you have to stop doing this. And you said, what? And I said, well, you're selling to the club at the same price. And you're like, yeah, but I'm charging them for my labor. And I said, but there's this whole other world out there where you can make a profit on the product. And I don't know if, if a bell went off in your head or, or if that was like an, an aha moment, but um, you started making profit on products shortly after that. I mean, at first you pushed back because you're just such that kind of a guy. You're such a nice guy that you, you felt like charging a profit was gouging your client. And um, so it was just, it's something I'll never forget. Well, I, I, I do remember, I do remember that. And I, and at the time, like I was so wanted to be different and, and just like above board. And I thought that, you know, when, when the clients that were hiring me, because we were still very close to them and we were where this crowbar or whatever, I felt that ethically it was, I, I couldn't do that. I wasn't really established as a business per se. Then I wasn't, I design yet. It was just me just kind of working out of the back of my car, yeah, you know? Yeah. So, but yeah, that was a, that was a good aha moment. And it was right around there that we, that we started establishing ourselves as a company and we started doing bigger projects. And, you yeah. know, that was very, very early on. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I look back and it's funny because people said, you know, what is, if you could go back and look at the work that you did then and what do you think? And I was like, well, there's a saying that like as a designer, as an artist, your greatest enemy is your own history. You know, so when you look back in those moments and, and you go, Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I made some things that, but, but I think it's all part of the learning process, right? That, that's interesting. I've never heard that saying, but that makes so much sense. I mean, for a designer, you're so, you can easily get locked into a pattern, right? Like where right. someone sees your work and and right away it's a Michael Meacham design or whatever. Like you want to evolve, you want to constantly be, you know, reinventing yourself. I guess in a sense, while still having a line through it that that 
speaks to you, you know, that, that is your personality or whatever. Right. Yeah. I have, you know, I have a friend of mine, Marina, uh, who's in our industry and she's like, I can definitely tell a Michael Meacham design. She's like, you have a style because it's, it's really, it's a, it's a great style, but it's a style. And I do like, I, I base everything off of like negative space and uh, high contrast. And, and, and I try to take those design elements with me pretty much in every project. Well, they're yeah. all different. There's still a signature look, whether it's Dearson, Lieberman, you know, uh, Shemaleski, like whatever, you know, we all have our, we all have our styles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the things I think with you, like very early on, you locked into some of these like club med kinds of projects that, that pulled you into like, I think Mexico and some stuff in the mm -hmm. islands and whatever. How did, how did all that happen? Uh, yeah, we were, there was a club that we did and uh, it was actually, I got a lot of mileage out of this club in um, Miami and we did this cool, it was like, we got the color kinetic stuff from you and I basically edge lit plexiglass top and bottom. And then uh, like I did all these cool patterns through it. And it was like very unique at the time. And uh, these guys that were uh, during winter music conference, they were doing a, a party there and ended up just meeting with me and they got a contract through a friend of theirs to do this new club, Club Med in Cancun. It was like one of those post-hurricane projects. Okay, yeah. And they asked us, and we just vibed really well. Uh, one of the main guys, his name is Kevin Bat, and he, uh, you know, we just had a really good chemistry and been with him ever since. We still work with him. And that's, and that's a, remarkable. Like, you just don't see that. You don't see in, in the sort of install uh, side of the business, you don't see people with clients for 20 years very often. You know, no, it, it seems to well, be rare because they always want to go a different direction, right? Yeah. Well, Clement is one of those things that w when you get in, you get in with them, like you're in. And as yeah. long as you can to do what you say you're going to do and work hard, uh, it's challenging because the projects are in islands and they're tough to get to. But we've managed to, to pretty much make it work. Uh, and with a corporate... What's with that? a more with a more corporate thing like like a club med, um, like I I would find that you'd feel boxed in 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 that type of a situation like where they want sort of a cookie cutter design and you know simple controls and because there's turnover of staff and things like that like do you run into those types of problems or challenges I should they, say yes and no they've given us the freedom because of how, how long we've worked with them and how closely we work with them. So they give us the freedom to say, okay, here's the controller we're going to use. We use MAs and here's a, the media servers we're going to use. And, you know, we were the first company brought led screens to club Med. So, you know, that, that was a big game changer for them. So yeah, there is like limited budgets and we have to use equipment that uh, we know is going to get beat up and the environment itself, uh, you know, so, it's it, it it's without its challenges and there's a high turnover there because you're you're getting kids that are 18 19 years old that are like hey i'm gonna go to club med and i'm gonna work hard and they get there and they realize like you're working long hours and you're in kind of tough conditions and they do have a high turnover yeah it's not quite as sexy as the brochure right where you're gonna meet it, beautiful women it, from around the world and it's just gonna be this fabulous life you're you're uh i mean a little I, different it, like Right. Like I live in the tropics. I live in Miami. There's no club med village. That's as nice as my home, how I feel. Right. So yeah. I, I go 
like, oh, I'm going to Club Med. And I remember I was in Cancun. It was sunset. I'm in the lobby and they've got the big ceilings and the white sails, the fabric that's just kind of going through and this beautiful breeze. And it's absolutely stunning. And I'm like, I can't wait to go home. <laughs> I can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> that's hilarious. That's funny. Yeah. Because no, we do, like I said, we do all the ones in the, we do all the tropic ones. The one that yeah. I was really excited the most about, uh, which was Clement and uh, Beach, it was called Meaches and Dominican Republic, it was a brand new village, and Montreal. Like that to me, like I'd rather go to Montreal than I'd rather go to any of the other villages. Really? Huh. Yeah. And then, and then you know, one, one of the things about Clement is that every now and then you come across these people that are absolutely gems. I work with this girl named uh, Angelie. Her father actually works at Solotech. So she's been exposed to lighting and production. And she is like one of those people that when you collaborate with, it's it's like the energy and, and her ideas and what she wants. And she pushes me as a programmer and a designer. Like she's like, Michael, I've got this great idea. And I'm like, Anna, that's going to take me an hour to program it. And she's like, well, <laughs> so be it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She sets her watch. Yeah. Go. <laughs> yeah. They do come incredible collaborative uh yeah. people that you with and i met some amazing people at club Med. yeah it, it feels like you do a lot of international stuff like i mean you're 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 a relatively small company but it seems like you do lots of stuff you know whether it's in canada or in the caribbean or uh you know even europe um yeah all of it is that by design or is that just, you know, because of the, the nature of some of your projects that have been publicized or whatever? And then you get a call saying, hey, we saw what you did. We'd like to do something like that. It's it's a little bit of all of it, actually. Like, uh, you know, when you start traveling around and you start doing these big projects, you get you get well known. And, and you know, the projects that we're doing, like Eleven, you know, Eleven is undoubtedly one of the world's most popular nightclubs. I mean, yeah. everybody. I mean, I'm in London and, and I have people like I was at a nightclub and somebody's like, oh, uh, are you in Miami? Like, yeah, we go to a club that are called Eleven all the time. Have you heard of it? I was like, yeah, I, I know. I know that place. <laughs> no, a little you know, bit so about like, it. Yeah. So you, so you get, so you, you know, as obviously social media has changed everything for us so that, you know, when you do these projects, they're kind of all over the place. And then people want to know who did that. And then, then, you know, so when we did a project in Osaka and Tokyo and Dubai and all these other places, you just, we have a formula where we just know how to do it. And yeah. you know, we love it. I mean, like our, our team, it, it depends. Like I, I've, I've our, our team really loves to travel. Um, it's not all, it's not all puppy dogs and ice cream. Sometimes, you know, these, we're in some harsh conditions and we're working long hours, but it's yeah. very rewarding. Yeah. Well, and again, I mean, projects like Eleven, obviously, you can't pay for marketing like that. Like that, that is right. just stuff that says, "Hey, this guy knows what he's doing. His team, they know what they're doing. If they can do something like that, they can do my little podunk club in Toronto or whatever, right?" right. So, um, yeah, that's yeah. amazing. The, the project we did a project last year we worked on for quite some time called Forty Four, like hundreds of moving lights, and it was very very cool creative project that we put together and that was because of 11 like they were introduced to us and and when they found out that we were the designers from 11 they were like that's our favorite club we want to be in 11 that's you know the wild. place that we 
Tokyo when they came and they said, hey, we love Eleven. We want you to design Eleven to look, we want our club to look like Eleven. I'm like, I can't do that. I can't paint the same picture twice. And they were like, okay, do it the way we want to do it or we'll have somebody steal your design. <laughs> so there's, okay, there's a little bit, there's a little Eleven influences in the, uh, in the, Tokyo Club. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you got it right at eleven, obviously, and and uh, yeah. so if you have to steal little bits and pieces, like, you know, how many songs did uh, ACDC write around three chords, right? So, and they seem to be doing okay, but right, uh, yeah. Well, there was, you know, eleven. Eleven was one of those places where, uh, you know, I worked with this architect who passed away, Tom Telesco, who was beautiful, beautiful man. Oh, I beautiful didn't even know that Tom died. Yeah, he died I've a few known years ago. Tom for a hundred years. I've known him. I did a job with Tom with Joe Zamore, like in nineteen ninety one, I think. Uh, wow. I'm sorry to. Yeah, it was like three years ago, three or four years ago. Oh, he I passed didn't even away. Know that. That's sad. But then you know, beautiful man, beautiful soul, oh, amazing man, and and you know, brilliant vision. Brill. Yeah, like taught me so much in the early days of of who I am today. Yeah, but we would have. Things. Uh, so there was lots of times where we were in Tom Telesco's office and I felt like sometimes, you know, we're just kind of bashing ideas around and they never went anywhere. But then when Dennis DeGory, who's the owner and, you know, conceptualized Eleven, came in, we would have these meetings. It was just the three of us bashing out ideas. When I left and I remember going home and telling Christine, this is something magical is going to happen. This place is going to go off. Yeah. And it did. It, it didn't happen overnight. It took its time to get there. But yeah. The, the imprint of it, the foundation of all of it. I I'm, knew. I'm it was curious be. though. Like, did did Dennis always have sort of the attitude that I don't care what it costs? No, not at all. We we definitely had like, you know, compared to the budgets we do now, we had a relatively limited budget. So you know, sometimes having those limited budgets, you have to really push yourself to get the most out of it. Right? Hate mm -hmm. to hate to use yeah. a bad analogy, but the matrix. Matrix was so much more brilliant than the other ones, even though they had less budget, but they had to really push to get to get some amazing creativity out of it. And I think that's what the first eleven no, was. It was a modest budget. It's a great comparison, and and you know some of my least favorite concerts that I've seen were the biggest budget ones because it was just like, hey, we can afford a thousand moving lights, so we better put them up there and we better turn them on all the time too, you know. And uh, you know, I I prefer you know, more of the art uh, being applied to those designs than, than just, you know, blah, let's turn everything on all at once. Well, and that's how, and that's how 11, that's how 11 was. Like, uh, again, it was a very collaborative effort. We were kind of like, Tom's like, Hey, I have this idea. And then when Dennis said, I want to do something in the round, I was like, okay, I've got an idea. Give me a day to work it out. And it was inspired by when the who did the Super Bowl and they had like the, you know, all the my strips and, and on oh, stage. Wow. And that was, that was like the seed that was planted for, for, for what became like the iconic halo, halo ceiling at 11. That's, that's where, so and that's where the nuclear, that was a seed that started everything for that. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I've seen not in person, but I've seen so many of your designs just from following you on social media and stuff that just continue to sort of break new barriers and go further with that ceiling look like a very recent project that you've been working on. You put out some renderings that were just incredible. I was like, wow, you know, like I, I need to start going to nightclubs again at 58 years old, you know, which I'm not going to do by the way, but, 
they didn't yeah, look like that when I went to nightclubs. Yeah, I don't rec- I don't recommend going to nightclubs. It's not for people like us. The music's mm-hmm. terrible. I've always spent my life in front of house or the booth. So going in as a pedestrian, going in as just a casual observer, yeah. is very difficult. You know, when when I bring clients, like we did a project in Atlanta, which is one of my favorite projects. This is the one I don't know if you saw with the transparent LED cubes and just moving lights yeah, inside of them. Amazing! I love that. I love that look. Yeah, that was that was one of my that was one of my favorites. But we took that, you know, we took the owner to Eleven, and it's just like. I think the name of your pe- podcast pretty much is so apropos for where we are right now. Lives. <laughs> it's completely true. No, I, you know, the thing is people in, will invite me to a show, a concert, and I'll be like, well, have I got parking? <laughs> uh, you know, can I go in a special entrance? <laughs> you know, have I got all access passes? Cause I, I just don't like dealing with it anymore. I don't know, you know, again, maybe it's just an age thing or, or, uh, I'm jaded. I don't know. I don't know what you would call it, but I'd rather stay home. I had a moment. Sad. My real, I had a older person moment. I was programming things like an ultra or electric daisy carnival and thousands of people in front of my stage. It's absolutely packed. And I remember looking up and I was like, fucking kids. <laughs> <laughs> Get off it, my lawn. <laughs> right. Well, you you know, the thing is, like, you're, you're seeing, like, you know, especially, like, young women coming out to these shows that are 18, that are 19, and, and they're, like, basically naked. And I'm like, it's not cool. You yeah. put some clothes on. I mean, it, you know you didn't leave the house that way, right? So, so, so funny. Like, go out of the house dressed like that. So you're kind of, it's just a different mentality. So, I'm really happy to see that you're basically older than me now, you know, <laughs> with that kind of a statement. <laughs> That's, that's awesome. So, you know, one of the things, I mean, that comes out in your personality, it's already come out in this discussion is, is you're a bit of a perfectionist. You, you appear to be targeting, uh, you know, not only excellence, but like perfection and, and just levels of things that, that may or may not even exist. And like, is that true? First of all? It, it is and it isn't. There are some things, and I think we all have to reconcile this when we're designing a project or we're putting a project together, like things that are acceptable and things that aren't. You know, like uh, the, the design, the concept, the implementation of it has to be perfect. Our rack work could use a little work. Like racks are just one of those things are like, I hate them. Our crew hates them. So they're not like the, you know, they're not like the perfect kit, like to this, to this. Yeah designs. Uh, so there are some places where <clears throat> I'm, I'm willing to let a couple things slide, but the overall, like, you know, on a, on a, on a looking at it in a wide, wide view it has to be perfect. And, yeah. you know, when we're, when we're working with clients and I, and I know we have a bit of a reputation of being expensive, definitely have a reputation of being expensive. But the reason that is, is that when we go into these projects, like we know what technology costs. You know what technology costs. It's very expensive. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're still a project-driven company. We're not, like, I don't go into these projects going, how much money can I make? What is, what is our profitability yeah. going to be on this project? Never that. That's always, like, the last thing that comes into play for me. It's always about how badass can I make this? What, what can I do? And, and, and how interesting can I make it? And unfortunately, that stuff is expensive. 
But yeah, you know, I have a spreadsheet when I'm designing things that basically is calculating, you know, and there's a percentage mark percentage already built into that number. So here's here it is. And then I have that bottom number. And then Christine sets all my spreadsheets up. I'm like, sweetie, I need you to, I need you to lessen this number, this profitability number, so that I can make this budget work. You know, it's a, a tough thing because you know she's she's accounting. She's like, we have to make this bottom line. And I'm like, yes, but I have to make this pretty and sexy. Well, and you know, I guess part of that too is that when you're a small company, you have to pick and choose. And, uh, you know, you can't just take on every project. So I think from your standpoint, and again, I'm just guessing and putting this together, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but you probably avoid some of the smaller projects that come your direction because you're going to have to put just as much effort into a small project and you may not be able to pull it off in the way that you would like to uh, or that meets your standards. So instead you pass it on to someone else. Does that happen? You couldn't be any closer to the truth than that. And, and we had that yeah. even on Friday. Like I gave this project to one of the guys that works with me, with Len. I gave it to Len. I said, Len, listen, I can't yeah. I don't really have the bandwidth to, to do this. I don't. The, they don't have the budget. It's still a decent budget, but not. You know, it, doesn't, it doesn't tick all the boxes that, that I would require to do, to do a project. And you're only as good is the last project that you do. Well, and also, you know, you you can drive yourself completely batshit crazy by trying to be everything to everyone. And, you know, I think you've done a really good job of figuring out what your clientele looks like and, you know, sort of staying in your lane, right? Yeah. Well, there becomes a time where for for the owner of a company where it becomes dysfunctional to try to take on every project. Like you have to go, you know, uh, in, in the size of our company, like we're, we're, we're very expandable, you know, we're, we can accordion this, like, however we need to, uh, we have the team to be able to assemble these big projects, but it's, it really comes down to how many designs can I do in a year? And I don't want to sacrifice the integrity of one design because, you know, it's the, the budget's not there. So we, we, we pick and choose the, the clients that like tick all the boxes for us creatively. Yeah. So. I mean, that leads me to sort of another question about business, because you just kind of uh, touched on this. But when you look at your business, do you look at basically maintaining, like if you're projecting next year, for example, or three years from now, are you looking really to grow your business or more of a maintenance thing from a standpoint of we've got the ability to do, you know, X millions of dollars of business and that's what we're going to do. We're not going to try for X plus 15% or X plus 20% because that's when we need to really change what our business looks like. So what's your vision as a, as a business guy when it comes to growth versus maintaining the size of the business and, and the excellence? That's an excellent question. Uh, and it's something that, that for many years that, I, that we've thought about, we've gone back and forth, that even you and I have talked about how can we you know, work closer together. And I, I, I think for us that, in, and if anything about COVID that I was grateful with was the size of our business and being able to weather the storm. And even though we were still busy during COVID, we, we didn't have, you know, we, we, we still had guys on our payroll that we still paid and we took care of. But because we were a smaller company that wasn't like PRG or Forwall or, you know, that had a huge payroll, like we were able to maintain and weather the storm. I don't worry mm -hmm. money in the sense where like, 
I'm, I'm stressed and I'm worried about this because we have a, we have a manageable business. Uh, every year we've been able to, you know, continue like a little bit higher from the year before, uh, you know, but, but the growth of our company is like, I'm happy with where it's at. Like I'm, I'm, uh, like I, I find that we've, we've, we found our stride and you know, delineating from that and try to be something that we're not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very like, uh, I have a great project manager. His name is Holmes Ives. He takes care of basically all the design. We, you know, we have this whole formula that's really worked for us. And I feel that like, if we tried to be something that we're not, or we try to grow bigger than, than our means, then, then, we, then we have the risk of falling or, you know, coming yeah. Would never want that. Like I have all the confidence of a very creative, you know, well-established business guy moving forward. And if, I think if anything, yeah. we, we, we took those, I know that if you take the risks, there's rewards with it, but there's also the possibility of failure. Well, nope. <clears throat> honestly speaking, yours is one of the businesses that I would look at as a business where I don't think like I've always had this mentality that if you're not growing, you're dying, right? You're, you're either growing or you're dying. Those are the only two options, but your business isn't like that because I think one of the things you're doing in your business is weeding, you know, you're, you're weeding and, and making the pristine garden as opposed to, I, it's gotta be a bigger garden. It's gotta produce more potatoes. It's gotta do this, whatever, right? You're, you're cleaning up your garden so that not only a it matches what your vision of your business is, but it matches your lifestyle. It matches who you want to be as a designer, as a business person, right or wrong? No, ab absolutely. Yeah, I, absolutely. Huh. And you know, it's it's more like uh, a boutique lighting company where people who want quality and who want like the best, you know. So instead of producing excellent, you know, like uh, just tons of stuff, like we're very like keen on doing you know, projects that take us a while to deliver because they're very complex. And, you know, so having being a more boutique lighting company uh, and focus on the bigger projects and we do massive projects uh, really works for us. You know, I don't, yeah, because I felt like, you know, even when you and I were talking about the possibility of working together, like I'm not a corporate guy. I'm not that. Yeah. I have to work at my own organic time. I'll get in the office at like eight o'clock in the morning and then maybe by noon, I'm like, I got to go to the gym and I'll go to the gym for a couple hours and I'll come back and then I'll, yeah. work. so there's no, there's no corporate structure to who I am or what we do. And I feel that if there, if there was ever a box that I was put in, I think it would not do well for me. Yeah. What about though? Like, cause anytime I look at a business, one of the things I look at is, is, you know, there's sort of two ways you can grow. One is, one is finding more, customers for your for your product and the other is finding more product for your customers and they're very different you know so you know one is finding a lot more pockets one is going deeper into the pockets that you already have meaning you know you've already expanded to video have you ever thought to expand into audio and and bring on a partner who's a a really solid audio company or something along those lines. We, we, we work with a, a guy named John Ferrito who is uh Daz audio. And he was the one that designed, like I, I, I brought John to 11 and then he had a very great relationship with him and designed the 11 audio series with Daz. So we work very closely with John and there's good profit in sound, but like sound doesn't 
mean anything to me. Like sound isn't sexy. Sound gets in the way yeah. of design. That's why I always try to <laughs> person and let audio build around it. Uh, yeah. Because whoever hangs the first light wins, you know, versus the first speaker. <laughs> That's uh, hilarious. That's awesome. So, yeah, we do work, we, you know, we do work with John and we do these, these projects together. He is, he is a remarkable sound engineer. Uh, and he's just a business guy. Like John is just black and white. Like he's just, he's just business. You know, there's, yeah. you know, where I'm definitely more like, you know, he would be digital and I'm more analog, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it does. It does actually makes a lot of sense. So, um, gear, you use a lot of it. Yeah. I know you've, you've sort of, uh, moved around a little bit with what you love, what you don't love. Um, you know, I've been a supplier, I've been a friend, I've been, uh, you know, an agonizing, uh, try to make things right for you, you know, supporter at times. Um, I can, but be- oh, give me some- get it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we all can, I, I can too, you know, and, and emotions go a lot of different directions. Sometimes they're really great. Sometimes they're not so great. Right. But, um, but no, I mean, you, you, at times, you and, and Christine are, are very difficult to please, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. To me, I want to be a customer of a company like that. Right. You know, I, I want to deal with someone like that who wants things to be right and won't stop until they are right. Well, we're, and, you know, to me, that's not a bad thing. We're very passionate about what it is that we do. And we want... Yeah. You know, we, you know, when you, when you come up with these ideas and you have something, you want that to be perfect. So you get, right. you get emotionally attached. And, and I've realized that I've, I've, over the years, I've become less emotional and more pragmatic. Um, yeah. and, and I think that's, that's a big thing. Uh, to try not to react, uh, yeah. to, okay, things happen. And I've gotten to the point now I'm like, you know what, things happen. And yeah. when you're dealing with big projects, the more lighting, the more gear, the more kit, the more things can happen. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, and as long as you stay focused on the solution, not not as much on the problem. You know what I mean? To me, that's where the magic and and you know, because we're all problem solvers. That's what we do. That's what CEOs are. That's what entrepreneurs are. We fix things that are broken. Right. You know, I I wish we could just sit around counting piles of money all day, but that's just not what happens, right? We fix broken stuff. But you know, back back to gear. So, give me some of your thoughts on gear. Like, you know. Uh, great gear versus bad gear. What are the things you're looking for when you're picking product for a particular job? Do you always use the same lines? I mean, I know these are all different questions, but I just, I know in that magical brain of yours, there's, there's some pretty, uh, uh, significant thoughts on gear. Uh, so give me some of those. There is, uh, it's, it's, that's a, it's an excellent question. And it's, it's a bit loaded because, you know, at, at some certain point, Gear is gear. Like I wish that I had budgets for Ariton. Like I, I love Ariton and very light and, you know, but the, the thing is, is like, you have to go, okay, I could have 12 Ariton Diablos or I could have 36 Cameo S fives, you know, and, yeah. and I'm not lighting Bono. I'm not lighting you too. I'm lighting nightclub. So you have to <clears throat> kind of pick and choose what you know the, the quantity and quality over everything i'll always use quality but as far as like to the level of you know like like when we were in um germany at ProLight a few months ago and you walk in and you look at the robe booth and you see like 
that's a light. Like that's a fucking light. The beam, the clarity, the yep. like, focus on it, the the edge on it. The like, quality becomes obvious. Yeah, it really does. And same thing with yeah. air and and very light. Like these fixtures are so well made. And yeah, then you kind of get more into the to the club market stuff. So <clears throat> again, quality and quantity kind of thing. I'll always try to I'll always use some level. That like I'll never sell something that I don't believe in. I'll never spend, yeah. no matter what it is. Um, <clears throat> you know, so it's all about relationships at a certain point, right? Like again, the in the club market, the the playing field is relatively level. It's really about the relationships that you have. You know, we've developed yeah. with Cameo, <clears throat> we've have a really good relationship with them. Uh, William Riva, who is our, our rep, like I can call him up 24 hours a day and say, William, I'm having an issue and they'll solve it, you know, and that's, yeah. and that's, that's a beautiful thing. There's been other manufacturers that I've worked with where I, you're in this long relationship with them and you feel that it's very transactional and that it's very one-sided, yeah. you know, and those are the relationships that I don't really, that I don't work well, with. Michael, I- Unfortunately, and this is just my opinion, but some of that is the same as what I described the difference between Canada and the United States. You know, when you have 10 times as many people in the same amount of space, things change and and you can't operate in the same fluffy way. Same thing in businesses. When you're 20 million, I have no idea how big Cameo is, by the way, but they're smaller than some of the other big ones that we won't mention by name. But um, when you're smaller, you are willing and able to do things that you're not willing and able to do anymore when you're larger. And that's just reality. I get it. I get it. Yeah. But at the same time, like with Cameo, like with, you know, putting them on 11 and putting them on these massive projects, we've legitimized them because they're a German based company in the hell. Yeah. You know, and when you, when you put these on these massive projects and, and I admittedly get a sense of entitlement. Like I expect. No, no, I know that. You want to be treated special and and you deserve it. Because, I mean, you're putting, like you said, you know, for Cameo, that was a game changer for them. Yeah. You know, that literally put them on the map in in the club business in the United States, in a sense, right? So um, that's got value. And I've always told you that. Like, I remember when you were doing the iPix things and I said, go get your own. (laughs) You know, you're bringing value to Barco versus you bringing value to you. Right. Because you could get that same thing from a thousand manufacturers in Asia. It would perform just as well. Uh, you could service it just as well. I mean, you know, you got to look for value where you can get it, obviously. And right. I wouldn't do that with a moving light because there's just too many, literally too many moving parts. But right. I mean, um, and thing, like no matter how good a light is, it's going to break, especially with the wearing. Yeah. And I yeah. yeah. program them hard. Yes. Uh, so like you said, it's down to the relationship. It really is. And that's, and that to me is really the most important thing. You know, uh, I mean, William came to our wedding, you know, when Christine and I got remarried, yeah. you know, so it was, uh, it's important to have these, these relationships with people that you can call up and that you can emotionally say, listen, this is what I need. And this is not what I'm getting. This thing that's happened, yeah. but you know, it's, it's, you want that relationship to, for them to say, I'm going to make everything good. I'm going to make everything right. And that's all you yeah. And so you went to ProLite. So tell me some of the things that you're really excited to be designing with that you couldn't or wouldn't have designed with a year ago. 
there is this light. Uh, it's called the IFX 60. It's highlight, I think, is a manufacturer, and it's basically kind of like a cross between an old VL5. If you remember the VL5 with a with a, of with, course, which to me is more art than light. I mean, I could just yeah. I was sitting on a shelf in my office, like just oh hell yeah, beautiful. So this light has like it's got the moving blades in it, and then it's got like a BI effect to them. Uh, and, uh, it's probably definitely like I'm designing a club in Toronto right now, and I'm very excited to use a bunch of these in that. Uh, and then you know, pixel map them and do a bunch of really cool stuff. So that that was yeah, that was a very cool light that that I, that I stumbled across. At, cool. Uh, and uh, they have U.S. distribution? No. Well, yeah, it's a. Uh, well, this is for a Canada project, but it's a uh, Technolux and uh, has is their distributor. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Anything else? Uh, you know that was I mean, and then like obviously like all the Ariton stuff like was amazing. Like I. Yeah. There. You know what's incredible is when you go to a demo when you you know when you're in the trade show and they do they run a time code show, and at the end of that show, people are applauding, because yeah have to look really hard to find a more salty disgruntled group of people than us lighting designers we are <laughs> terrible that is true <laughs> yeah that is true you're hard to please we are hard <laughs> that's that's for sure please you know, so. yeah no th i agree with you like i've always commented on their videos and stuff Ayrton since the beginning of time like even their original little eyeball fixture and stuff yeah. the that's the shows that they programmed were just incredible. And their videos that they do of those shows that they program are incredible. Like somebody is doing an unbelievable job with that stuff. Hats off to them. Like it's one of those where they are using every bit of kit and they are they are using every whatever that fixture can do, they are they are making sure it does it. Yeah. And same yeah. thing with uh, Robay. Robay's uh, Robay has I know these these two Brits that uh, program them and they are remarkable i love that as as a programmer as a designer i love going to see shows where i don't know how they did that or i'm so yeah like i'm just like everybody else i'm hard to please and when i get inspired by stuff like that it makes me happy you might be too young but clay packy used to have two brits uh that you know very very uh eclectic or whatever you would call it just a bit out there these two guys but they used to do the clay packy shows like in the 90s and stuff and unbelievable shows i mean their personality came through on those shows and you know they were the Ayrton back then but Ayrton's really nailing it like i saw i only saw it on video but their pro light show was unbelievable yeah. just like wow yeah. it made me want to go out and buy the laser fixture and the other the uh the wash the fixture yeah, Christine and I were just like, <laughs> yeah, blown away. Yeah, absolutely blown away. So that makes that makes me. You feel know what's funny? On my podcast next week, I've got Chris Ferrante, the the CEO of of Ayrton. So yeah, well, hats off to him. I'll, I'll be sure to tell him uh, tell him you know that you complimented him and stuff. Yeah. So I, um, I, I you know getting back to the kit thing, like I try to be fixture agnostic, uh, but you know because. You don't want to ever just kind of box yourself in and say, this is this is the only lights that I have in my toolkit. So you have to be, you know, willing to expand to everything. And especially when we're doing video and, and all these different creative things. Uh, but again, it's the, the relate. Yeah, again, at this point, it's finding the company 
that has the relationship that you want and the products that, that you're happy with. That's the most important thing, Michael. I mean, at the end of the day, all the fixtures are going to do the job just fine. Yep. And if you sprinkle a little here and a little there and a little there and a little there, sure, everybody will buy you dinner at LDI, <laughs> but you're not going to get them to drop other calls to pick up your call and to just jump through hoops to make magical things happen and stuff. I mean, that rely that's you need a relationship. You need a strong relationship. And that means you got to give them some loyalty, too. Right. So yep. uh, relationships go both directions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So. You know, I don't know if COVID, you said COVID basically really didn't hurt you that much as a business. It, uh, uh, you kept working and stuff, obviously, because most of your business is install work. You, you don't rely very heavily on shows. I know you do like the occasional, uh, uh, EDM festival or something, right? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to say, this is a horrible thing to say because of how much our industry suffered during that period. But that summer of COVID was the best summer I've ever had. Cause we got up here to Whistler. I was still like, you know, we do fountain shows. So I was programming some Daytona fountain shows. So every day we just go in and do some cool stuff. So creatively kept me going physically. I'm out and I'm just, you know, just best shape of my life. And then just yeah. the, the sense of calm and peace that I had. So, uh, you know, and then just gearing up for whatever was coming next. So COVID yeah. didn't affect us, but I was absolutely so lucky and, and grateful that we were in that situation where I'm looking and I'm reading Facebook and I'm seeing these people's lives fall apart in front of me and, and my heart went out to them and, and you know, very empathetic to their situation. So oh yeah, I'm, I'm happy that I'm here, but on the other part, yeah. it was so heartbreaking to see that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I became very much involved in, in, doing my best to try and help those people whose lives were falling apart, doing whatever I could to, to become a, you know, a, a ears and a voice at, at the same time to try and help people through some of those things. And how, you, was, you how, know, how were you guys through that? Like, I mean, like everybody else, I'm sure people weren't buying gear in the quantity that they were. No, but I was grateful that our sales didn't go to zero. Like a lot of companies did, you know, like people who were re relying solely on rentals really went from a hundred percent to zero percent. Uh, we went, we lost about probably 70% of our, our revenue. Um, but it became a very positive time for my company because we re reinvented ourselves and we launched a new platform, uh, in the, uh, fall of 2020 and um you know it gave us time to get through all of the hiccups and blips of launching that new platform we're about to launch a brand new platform again this this summer slash fall and uh because we had a lot of pain in the last one you know software is a nightmare uh brand new software launches are always a nightmare and we're constantly looking to evolve that and and become better and better at what we do but um it became a very positive time for me as much as, you know, it was negative and sad and our, our industry became very, very divisive and very divided on, it, on topics from politics to masks to, you know, the, the sickness itself to just anything we could become divided on. We, we went from being this divided to like, just going like that, you know, as far spread out as we possibly could get. And you, you know who I am as a, as a person. I'm, I'm conflicted in that 
you know, I'm a pretty liberal person when it comes to a lot of the social stuff and to helping people and to, to being there for people. I couldn't give a shit about who you sleep with, who you vote for, who you pray to. I don't care about any of that stuff. I really don't. You're either a dickhead or you're a good person, you know, or you're somewhere in between, which is where most of my friends are. Um, so, you know, I mean, for me as a, as a human, I felt engaged. I felt like, uh, you know, I started these weekly zoom calls and, and it just turned into such a joyous thing. Like it really was a great thing. I became very close friends with some people who prior I was either just a supplier to, or, a a client of or whatever. I became very close with a lot of those people. I've got amazing relationships with people today that I didn't, you know, two or three years ago. And I reinvented my business and, and, uh, uh, you know, so yeah, I mean, for me, COVID as negative as some aspects of it were mostly on the political side and all of that stuff. Um, so much of it was positive. It really was, you know, people had nothing but time. Yeah, and and and, and that's that's when the best relationships are formed, when exactly they strip away everything else and just get get right down to who you are and and what yeah what you're about. Well, I I finally talked with lighting designers about life instead of what lights you want to use for the next show or whatever. We actually talked about their kids or their family or what they think about you know, different things in life and stuff. And that to me is so much more interesting at this stage of my life. I don't, I don't care what lights you're using really. Right. You know, at the end of the day, like, are you happy? You know, how are things? How's your family? You know, that kind of stuff. Is are you, are you eating right? Are you taking care of yourself? <laughs> Hell yeah. Oh, I became crazy about that stuff. Like such a preacher because, you know, again, like you were watching people, you know, heading towards heart attacks and stuff, you know, cause now they're not working. They're sitting on the couch with, you know, Pringles watching Netflix all day. And you're only and good by the food that you eat, which is temporary. hundred percent. Yeah. I've really dove into that stuff. I've, I've gotten into, you know, food as medicine and, and all of that, you know, and I'm by no means perfect. You know, I probably had some ketchup Doritos this weekend. Um, <laughs> Which are amazing, by the way. If you haven't tried them, you got to try ketchup Doritos. DNA, though, isn't it? As a Canadian, like all that. Oh, of course, you got to have ketchup chips. But ketchup Doritos are amazing. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I really got into a lot of that stuff, and and that for me became positive. But you know, have you struggled with the same thing that everybody else is struggling with, like finding people? So when you get a larger project, is it tough to fill the roles that you need to fill? No, we've got a core group of guys that, again, like. Uh, you know, my project manager, uh, Holmes Ives and friend, Steve Watson, like these guys that we've worked with for quite some time. Uh, one of our main guys that runs 11, Benny, uh, Michael Suarez, uh, you know, Jeff, these, these guys are, are like our, our hardcore team. And then we just assemble them. Like we can put together a major nightclub with five guys and like rocket. It's all a science. You know, once I yeah. get done the design, I give it to Christine. She's just gangster with like with assigning and travel and ordering and shipping logistics and you know so like you said we're you know we do massive projects with appearance and we're, we're a small company so yeah if, so what is what does that timeline look like so like i call you from conception to completion so i call you and i say hey michael i have 
a billion dollars and I want to design the coolest nightclub there is in Dubai, for example. Um, beginning to end. I'd say that anywhere from three weeks to two months for conception. Uh, and then depend, like, let's just pretend that like we, there's not a supply chain issue. Uh, then it's, uh, then it's ordering and custom manufacturing. Like, so if we're doing custom work in Shenzhen, we're having you know, custom screens built. Uh, yeah. Anywhere from four months to a year, depending on what it is. Conceptual uh, yeah. part can can always get a little tricky because, like, talk to any designer. It's just like I, I know you have music background. It's the same thing. Like when you go into I, I think like every design starts the same way. I doubt myself. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't, why am I here? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, it, it starts rubbing two balloons together in the static. And then I'll just kind of like, you know, it, it's like putting your foot in the water. That's the, that's the most difficult thing. And then like, yeah. I'll put my foot in the water and then I'll get in. And then once I'm in, I'm in. It's a project I'm working on right now for Toronto. Like started off the same way. And then like just when you start to see things come into focus and you start to see things happen and, you know, I do everything in 3D, which has been a game changer for me. We use yeah. a software called Synchronorm D2, which is like, which is like all those renders you see is coming from that. That, yeah. that for me was like between Vectorworks and that, those two combinations as, and, and like, you know, MA set up in our office has changed everything. Yeah, some of your renders, I can't tell if their renders are real. I know. Yeah. You know, I mean, some of them are that good. Like the boxes, the the boxes that you had, uh, you know, to me, I thought that was, I was like, wow, those are already hung. And no, they're not. They're rendering. That's a concept. But, um, we you know, we have really, really cool stuff. We actually give our um, clients now, so every time someone signs on with us, we give them, a, we send them a, a pair of VR headsets. And then we'll, I'll send them, I'll put online VR renders so they can put the headset on and walk around their club in VR and see it. That's cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. That's been, that's been a big, big game changer where they can just like, and, and they, they know exactly what it's going to look like. And it's to the point now where the renders, like you said, look exactly like the final product. Yeah. No, that's, that's, uh, that's very cool. So, um, so things don't always go perfectly. No, they don't. Shockingly, right? So give me a give me an example of a horror story besides the uh, the bingo DJ day. What's like your worst day on the job? I'd say that when you, you know, every manufacturer I go into and I say the same thing at the beginning. We expect excellence. We understand that things will happen, but you have to make sure that they don't like like make sure that what you sent to us has been well tested, has been great. So I'd say the worst project that's, that's recently happened. We did a, we did the Charlotte, we did what's called the Charlotte cube, which was a pedestrian bridge in Charlotte at the convention center and okay. custom high res led video bars. And, and as I said to the manufacturer, I was like, listen, you have to make sure this is perfect. How to get a UL listing on it. Okay. I'm like, well, no problem. These, these bars will be great. Within a day or two, we started to see issues and failure happen. And then, Yikes. you know, we were able to kind of like change this, change that. We got the whole cube working 
And then within like a month, everything failed. I mean, and this is like giant. You had to get behind perf metal. You had to get scaffolding oh. up. I mean, this was a major, major thing. Everything failed because it was like you came down to the receiving carbs and the hub cards. So, uh, you know, within a year, I mean, like, and the thing is when you're working with the Asian manufacturers, it's part of the culture for them not to just fully jump in and take responsibility and say, we've made a mistake. We're going to do everything that we can. Usually the first response is you did something wrong and, and they'll kind of try to push back. Luckily, this manufacturer that we've been working with, we spent a great deal of money with, and they fully supported us and they, they made it right. And then we were able to, to go in and redo every, every bar came down, everything got redone, all the receiving carbs, all the harps put back in. And then, um, our, our, our very close colleague of ours, you may know, Ruben Lane came in and did all the, yep. you know, mapping for it and used AI. So that is, uh, that was <laughs> like one of the worst because we're, yeah, that's terrible. Christine and I are going like, if, if they don't make this right, we're going to be on the hook for this. And this is going to yeah. cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to make this right. You know, so yeah. would have supported, you know, but it would have been, it would have been bad. Well, and the client, I'm guessing, you know, breathing down your neck saying, Michael, <laughs> you know, what are we doing here? It, Charlotte that can commission us to do that. So, oh boy. And it was a big thing. So there could have been this moment of if this got out on the news where somebody said, you know, during that time, it's all fixed now. But during that process, it was like Charlotte spends X millions of dollars on a piece of art that failed. That would have been a great. Yeah. That would have been oh an boy. People well, and then it becomes very political because then whoever the mayor is at that moment, whatever political party they are attached to, the other one is going, look at how foolish these people are spending money on this crap, you know? So, yeah, I completely get what you're saying. That could have been different ways. Ugly. Christine and I were up at night quite often, like, you know, what, you know, what's our, what's our move here? So yeah, that was the, that was the worst in, in our career. Yeah. I can imagine. You know, videos become a big part of what you do. And like you said, the sort of the the beginning was, uh, well, I guess the big uh, here we are moment was 11, I guess, the ceiling uh, in 11, or was it? You no, know, no, 11 was, you know, 11, we worked up to 11. There was many projects that happened before then that got us to 11. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But we've, I, I was always a very early on adapter of video. I mean, I think... You know, we did Gentleman's Club called Scarlet's. I think we were, we used the Martin LC wall. I think we were the first company that I know of that installed video, permanent video in a nightclub setting. Uh, yeah. You know, way before it was expensive and it was. Yeah, I remember that. That was yeah. very early. That was pretty cutting edge at the time. Very cutting edge at the time. Uh, so yeah. that, yeah, that was, uh, and, and then using like the early on, uh, like the tracks on stuff, like the low res video stuff. I always loved that and still kind of do. I think there's an art to low res video. Uh, yeah. but just always like, there's just a point where a moving light is just a moving light. There's so much that you can do with it. Like, I'm still amazed, like the stuff that Lieberman does and Scott Chemileski and those guys, like, you know, they're, they're poetic when it comes to that. But I find that video reinforcement and all the other different elements and all the different other layers just brings everything together. And that's why we, but are you not, are you not in a, a, like I could see video in a nightclub causing everything to get a little too bright. 
Yeah, where, we're you know the lights are trying to compete with the video, and then next yeah. thing you know, it's just all in your face, and it's like a TV studio. It's bright as hell. Well, we're we're very like I make sure that the, the video is always dimmed down. I mean, we're never pushing twenty percent beyond twenty percent levels at the at the oh, club. Wow. For, and then you know, even like if I'm doing a festival, I'll always say to the video artist coming in, like, "Hey, let's try to avoid using white. Let's try to use high contrast. Let's try to work together." And uh, and then we'll try to have this nice balance. I mean, we <laughs> we were working on a festival, and the LD came in, and first of all, it was like, I was I was like, well, you're, where where do you want to set up on stage? And they go, oh no, I I mean, where do you want to set up in front of house? They go, oh no, I'm on stage. I'm my fans are here to to, to see me. <laughs> I was like, um, your video, you you need to be here. But the the moral of it, like they just cranking so much white. And, and this and this is a perfect installation where it was being way overpowered. Like I didn't have enough yeah. to keep it up, so I kept bringing the master, you know, the submaster down to to try to make sure that it wasn't overpowering. But it's a very good yeah. point. You have to really dial back how much. Well, I had uh, I had Mark Brickman on my podcast, and who was nice. Um, like Mark Brickman and Willie Williams, like those two are my my lighting idols. Well, I could imagine Willie Willie Williams for sure because you're such a U two guy. But, um, but anyways, Mark said he was commenting on EDM festivals specifically, and he said, you know, one of the things I really don't get is these people just put like loads of video and loads of white moving lights, and they just blast it all at the crowd. And he said, I will tell you, the last thing I want when I'm wasted out of my brains on Molly is a bunch of lights in my face, you know? So uh, it was an interesting comment, but I mean, I, I would, think that that really. I would, I would absolutely, I would absolutely agree to that. It's, uh, it's, yeah. it, it's a, it's a barrage of just constant source of, of that. And, and ADM festivals are, are, are notorious for that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's sort of what they are, right? It's it's all in your face all the time, and people jumping up and down, and it's just what they're there for, I guess. Yeah, I had a again, like I was, a, I did a for some reason, I always get stuck on the dubstep stage at every festival that I've ever done, uh, and and this ultra was the same thing, and it was just like you're just being, you know, the being berated by the music and the lighting and the the video, uh, but then again, you you. Yeah, I, there was this uh, band that played. They were called Black Tiger Sex Machine, and from a lighting and video standpoint, it was the, the most incredibly composited show I've ever seen. Like it was really? absolutely blown away that how I mean it was a composition of pure like perfection. Like there, the yeah. elder, uh, he was his name is Evan. It's incredible. Like all of it, just mind blowingly perfect composition. Yeah. And that well, unfortunately makes you feel good. When I, you... I, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the show designs have become a little bit homogenized lately, you know, because everybody's using five, 600 moving lights, 800 moving lights. It's all the same beamy looking effects. It's, it's, you know, I like, again, going back to Mark Brickman, one of the coolest things he did was at uh, Coachella. I think it was Neil Young. He had, uh, I think it was 16 follow spots. That was his lighting design. He went was, way old school with it. I was going to say, I think that was him probably being a contrarian at that point, right? It was. It yeah. was, but it was beautiful. 
You know, if you go back and watch videos of Neil Young at Coachella, and I forget what year it was, but um, it's beautiful, you know, and and it focused on the artist, not on this crazy light show in your face all the time, right? So, I don't know. I like both. I I like big light shows too, but uh, but occasionally I like to see something way dialed back, understated. You know, like you said, dark spaces and, uh, you know, just because you have a thousand moving lights doesn't mean they all need to be on. I've lost my connection with bands. Like I've, I, I'm, I'm going to admit there's been a few times I've gotten weepy at some U2 shows, you know, not like full <laughs> on little tear coming down your face. And I felt that since I've been so involved in lighting, I've lost that connection because I'm, you know, like Shemaleski and I went to see them in Madison Square Garden and we're you know, looking at the spectacle, we're looking at the whole thing more than focusing on the artist. Yeah, uh, you lost the innocence of of just being a, a concert fan or a right. live music fan. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then it's... No, I agree. John and I showing off Jaded. about lighting, like, oh, well, that's this light. Oh, that's a PRG. Yeah. You know, that's a pure yeah. tank. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, oh, you're right. You're right. So let me let me ask you one uh, sort of last question here, and then you know well, I don't know if there's things that I've missed that we can still talk about, but people coming into you know that that sort of wide-eyed young DJ coming out of the club in DC, moving down to Miami Beach to be a lighting guy, what kind of advice do you give him today? Uh, to really know your craft and to fully immerse yourself into it. Ask lots of questions be very humble and respectful and you know never think you're the smartest guy in the room you know and and I, and I find that for me like I was so grateful to the people that were there for me at the beginning uh you know Steve Lieberman was like an amazing person that you know Steve hired me to do stuff very early on and was very kind with his knowledge you know so I would I yeah. you know even Scott Chemileski, like these are very, you know, like Scott's one of my best friends and I could call him up and would all the time ask him just anything that came to mind. And these guys were very grateful with their knowledge. So, yeah. And, and so my thing is like, ask a lot of questions and, and be grateful and be humble. I, th- I think is the advice that I could give to anybody. Be like a, be a good human being. And I feel yeah. like there's an art loss in that. I have, an unbelievably high respect for our industry. And then when you start to read some of the, the boards, my respect for the people in the industry wanes a little bit because everybody yeah. hypercritical and everybody is like, Oh, I would have done this or I would have done that. You see like a new person asking a question on the lighting forums and they get destroyed because they're That's not terrible. I hate that. I, I hate seeing that. I do too. You know, uh, I mean, he's asking just an honest, simple question and people just, but that's online, isn't it? Like that's social media. That's, that's what it's all built on is just be people being assholes, you know? And, and I know it's unfortunate, but it's true. If you took a room of the same people and you put them all in, into a forum, I think people would be a bit kinder. Completely different. Because when you're facing, it's hard to be like an arrogant asshole. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, what what you just said though is really great advice. I I really do believe that you know humility and humble and uh, kind and hardworking and learning everything, being the best you can at your trade, um, 
it's all so important. You know, it's like you're not going to just walk in and be a rock star. You need to walk in and work your ass off and, you know, hope that someday you get to back up a rock star. You know, I mean, like you you have to be humble because otherwise, like even you when you were describing, you know, why you didn't want to charge a profit on the product. It was, you know, there was a lot of humility in that. Like, I'm not good enough yet to charge a profit. I'm not a real business yet. I shouldn't charge a profit. Who the hell am I to think that I could charge a profit on on lights? And, you know, that's dumb, but incredible. <laughs> well, that goes against everything that you believe in as a business person. Like, that's, you know. Not exactly true. Not exactly true. It actually, it, it really hits to the core of what I believe in as a business person. but. Um, every business owes it to your business, to your employees, to your community, to your customers, to your suppliers to make a profit because otherwise you're going to cease to exist. No, I, and, and look, I, I mean, less, lesson learned. And, and, and I definitely, yeah. and, you know, who I was then was, was very early on wide eyed, ready to take on the world and, and, and well, be good. And and having seen both of your houses uh, in photographs, anyways, you've done a pretty damn good job figuring out how to make a profit along the way. So you that's know, you've all, definitely figured it out. All Christine, like I want to. Yeah, like, no, she's know, an incredibly smart woman. She really, she's she's a beautiful human being. She's absolutely incredible. Like, yeah. And and you know, you never give the artist the checkbook. You never give the artist the, you know, the. Uh, that business savvy thing because she is. And I just, and then it's great because like I get to be who I am and there's, there's nothing else that I'm, I'm not, you know, so I get yeah. to be artist, I get to be the designer. She gets to be, you know, so these houses are as a result of her business. No, I, I, I would not argue with you on that. And, and she's, she's a great woman and I actually miss her. I'd love to, uh, we should meet for lunch in Kelowna or something one day. <laughs> You know, because it's just such a quick little drive. Michael, I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you today. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. It's my pleasure, man. It was, it was great, great catching up with you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, buddy. And enjoy your time out there, all right? And same with you. All right, buddy. See ya.